In case you missed it, on News Talk, a look back at the week that was. I'd probably send a text first. I think it's the fact that you're on the spot, whereas if it's a voice recording, you can kind of listen to it and think about what you're going to say. Whereas if it's a phone call, you kind of have to answer straight away. Is a phone call without warning an act of aggression? Is it like, oh Jesus, why is he ringing me? I wouldn't say it's aggressive, but you would be wondering what they want. Like, Yeah, it's not aggressive, but it's like, oh, why are they ringing me? This is out of the blue. Yes, I probably think it was important. And you'd think, oh, they're up to something, they want something. <laughs> yes, exactly. And would you I answer think, if I, I th- rang you out of the blue? I'd answer, but I think it was an emergency. You think it was an emergency? Yeah. And why is it that your generation, you'd have phone call anxiety, you wouldn't like to have an actual phone call? Well, I think we do like phone calls, but I think it would be like notified before, like, oh, I'm going to ring you. It would be like a text before. So you would know? Yeah, so I'd know that they were ringing me. But out of the blue, I'd be like, oh, no. We didn't have recognition. We didn't, yeah, you just picked it up. The phone rang, you answered it. Henry McKean reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, a new news talk survey has found that 90%, yes, 90% of politicians regularly receive verbal and physical abuse. On Thursday, Neil Richmond joined Kieran Cuddihy on the hard shoulder. And does it ever affect you? Of course, yeah, absolutely. In what ways? Get upset, you know. It's not nice to be called your personal appearance or people refer to my children or they refer to my parents who are both deceased for quite some time. They don't know anything about me. They jump to an assumption. And then when I see what they say again, I think of the former Senator Lorraine Higgins who ended up in the courts over really vile, personal, scary things. And we've had briefings in the Oireachtas. People have to change their security provisions due to what happened in England um, a fortnight ago, the very sad murder of David Amos. Um, so you do have that worry. And like the last thing I'd want is someone to be outside my front door with my kids inside like happened to Simon Harris. Is that something that would worry you about ministerial office? That that if this became a thing that they would be outside your front door and that maybe you can deal with it and brush it off, but your wife and kids would have to endure it? Certainly, you know, politics is in some ways the most selfish career because you don't always consider about the people who you bring with you, your family members, your supporters, your friends who have to either defend you in the pub or see horrible things written about you in newspapers. Sometimes it's merited and deserved, but really personal abuse as well. It doesn't concern or bother me, but I have noticed I'm a TD now. I've been a senator. I've been a councillor. And it does tick up the more you have an element of a public profile or the more you speak out, be it against, you know, anti-vaxxers or anti-lockdown people, be fairly critical of Brexit. And uh, that leads to a fair stick of abuse from a certain element in the UK. But it doesn't worry me personally, but it probably worries my family and friends Mm. inordinately. And that's why I think when someone can casually, with their identity known, say something completely irrational with no sense and just put across an element of hatred just because they can, maybe you need to call it out and say, that's not right. Maybe you should delete that, which is what I did. And do people assume things about you because of your identity for abuse? I mean, you know, ah, Neil Richmond, that South Dublin prod, whatever they happen to say. (laughs) Yeah, you get a lot of that. Or you're in Fine Gael and they have a warped opinion of Fine Gael based on whatever Facebook group they're in. uh, Or you're part of the New World Order who's trying to shut down. People have lots of different reasons. I had two emails simultaneously today, one asking me why I hated English people so much because of what I was saying about Brexit and the other one asking me why don't I go back across the border to my Orange Order mates. <laughs> you know, it's that sort of yeah. contradiction in term. Yeah. Like, the anti-British West Brit. Exactly, and you get terms that are put out and it's not very pleasant. Something you kind of laugh at like that, but when someone just goes like, I have an inexplicable hatred for this person simply because they're putting up a social media post about changes to tax bans. You kind of go like, that's not right to put that out there in the ether and hope that you might get a couple of likes on social media and make yourself feel good. Because someone's reading that, not me, but someone maybe connected to me or more worryingly, someone who's 18, 19 thing. And, you know, I'd like to run for electoral office, but do I want to be putting up with that rubbish? And I think we as public representatives don't do it enough. We kind of have to mind each other, Mm. but we should also call it out when we see it. Uh, Do you receive threats of violence as well? I have received threats of violence. I've never received a death threat. Um, I know colleagues who have very serious ones Mm. and I wouldn't try and play the victim or put myself in that direction because I know I haven't got that. I wouldn't try and dramatise stuff. But 
most of it you can dismiss. I've had to go to the Guardi once or twice and yeah. say, is this a serious threat? And they it's say, probably no. harder to dismiss it, though, now that there are people gathering outside politicians' homes. Exactly. And, you know, I looked at a video of a minister being accosted in the street and, you know, by the grace, five seconds here or there, that could have got really ugly very quickly. Um, and a lot of it starts, it's always been there in politics, but it's being amplified and being coordinated online. So I suppose there's a twofold point. One, social media companies have completely washed their hands with it. They continue to do so in every jurisdiction. Mm. It was the only the Australians who stood up to them. But secondly, it's general public discourse. You know, what you say online, it's no different than saying it to someone in their face in, in, to their face in the street. And we should remind people of that. And perhaps we as politicians should demonstrate our ability to be civil with each other a bit more. Mm. And I'd like to think I do. And I consider I have really good friends across all parties. And perhaps maybe that's something we should do a bit have more. Have you ever of. met any of the people who've said these awful yeah, things about you? I have actually. I go up and speak at Fáil a Pubble in Belfast every year in West Belfast. Brilliant festival. And I'd get a fair stick from certain people of a certain community in the north. And then you meet them in person, you get like, oh, you're not as bad in real life. Or they go like, oh, that was very interesting. I go, yeah, I know you, you know, I know what you tweet about me. And like every bully in every playground, they shrink up pretty quickly. And I think that's why it's not bad to say, if you're going to say something about someone, have the guts to say something that you'd say to their face. Some strong words there from Neil Richmond from The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddihy. On Monday, Moncrief explored how our identity works. And uh, it's not straightforward. So say then in terms of informing people's opinions or even having a taste in music, is it a bit chicken and egg in that you have a particular taste in music and you seek out people with a similar taste or you fall in with a group who have a taste in music and you adopt that? <laughs> I think it can, it can go either way. So certainly sometimes we seek out groups because we have a particular interest. Um, so you might be interested in yeah, a certain type of music or a hobby, for example, and you'd seek out like-minded people and form a group with them. But oftentimes our tastes are very much shaped by the groups we belong to. So the set of friends you, you have or the group that you belong to may have a particular norm with regard to the kind of music we listen to or the things we like to, to, to use our time for. And oftentimes we end up picking up on that and develop the same taste ourselves. Often it feels what's called self-authored. It feels like you came upon it individually, but we know uh, from observing these patterns spread through populations that it really is being caught uh, from what other people around you are doing. Is that where groupthink comes from or is groupthink just a a term of use that you hurl at people you don't agree with? (laughs) It's often hurled at people we don't agree with when a decision is made that we don't like or after the fact it seems like it was a bad decision. Groupthink is a very specific phenomenon, uh, or it's meant to be, which can occur when a group decides to place the need for consensus and cohesion above the needs to be accurate or make good decisions. But we tend to throw the term around a little bit more broadly than that. Uh, Mm. But certainly conformity pressure is something that occurs in many groups, both in order to fit in, uh, but also simply because the world is a complicated place. And as we're trying to make sense of things, trying to make sense of events, how how I should behave appropriately in a certain situation, what I should do during a pandemic, for example. It absolutely makes, it's very reasonable to look to to the other people, especially the people we share groups with, uh, to try to figure out what to do. And that's another reason we see this sort of conformity. Mm. But because I suppose all the things, well, I suppose all the things we think we know about the world, we don't really have firsthand experience (laughs) of them. We have to trust other people. Absolutely. There's very few things we actually personally have direct experience of, even something as sort of Widely accepted, although not everyone accepts it, but most people would accept the world is round. Mm. Um, and yet, do many of us have direct evidence of that? Not really. Not, but it's so widely agreed upon by people we trust and who we think are reasonable and rational uh, that it absolutely makes sense for us to, to sort of take that on faith. But the reality is we do that for many, many things, uh, including, you know, is it sensible to get a vaccine in response to COVID-19 or, uh, you know, how should we educate our children or what kind of music is cool? Mm. Uh, but say, I don't know, let's use the COVID example. I mean, there are people who, you know, would have a, a, a range of views. They won't take the vaccine. Mm. They don't believe it's serious, blah, 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 blah. But, but, uh, and they think they're being independent thinkers, uh, but they're part of a group as well, the same way all the people who took the vaccine are part of a group. That's right. I think very few people who say, I don't think it's good to take the vaccine and have a rationale for it 
are probably really independent thinkers. That that viewpoint came from somewhere and is part, in all probability, most of the time, of a norm of a group that they are identified with, um, often a political group. And the reason I say that is it is very hard to be a true independent thinker and stand up against um, people who don't agree with you unless you have what you believe is the backing of a group behind you. Mm. Um, I mean, there may be a handful of people like that who've independently come to that viewpoint and don't care what anybody thinks. Certainly some people are like that, uh, but most of us are not like that. And most of us need the social support of others who are like-minded on issues, including this one. Uh, so how do we integrate all these things in our mind? Because we think of ourselves as one person, as one being. Right. I mean, this is one of the paradoxical things about human identities. It certainly feels continuous. It feels unified in many senses or many ways. Um, and yet we know there are these multiple elements to it. And, and part of it is that, you know, we have these different aspects of ourselves and they come in and out of focus. And at any given point in time, we're often thinking of ourselves in, in a particular way. So there's a task, for example, that social psychologists use to, to get at this, where they ask people to complete the phrase I am 20 times. It's called the 20 statements test. And what's really interesting about doing this is it's very easy to do, right? If you take four minutes and try to list I am 20 times, mm. you will easily be able to do it. And you'll notice all sorts of things come up. Some are personality traits or skills you have as an individual. Some are relationships you, you hold that are important to you. And many are, for many of us at least, grounded in the groups we belong to, whether it's our nationality, our occupation, the, the team we're a fan of, and so on. Um, and so we, if you sit back and reflect on it, notice that you do have these multiple selves and that they come in and out of focus actually relatively easy, even in the course of a single day. You know, at work, you behave in one particular way and think about the world through one lens, and then you go home and interact with your family or your friends and, and can approach the world in, in quite a different way. Hmm. One of the ways that, just by the way, that we've noticed this as sort of psychologically as individuals is when our worlds collide, right? When you're with a group of colleagues at work and bump into a set of friends from outside the work context. And it often feels awkward. It feels awkward in part because you're not exactly the same person in those two settings. Such interesting research from psychologist and author Dominic Packer from Moncrief. Now, almost one in five investigations into the Lone Parent Welfare Scheme result in the payment being terminated or reduced, according to the Irish Mail on Sunday. But are these investigations targeting vulnerable communities? We're joined by Gary Gannon, Social Democrats TD for Dublin Central. Uh, Gary, you believe these investigations reek of old Ireland. Why so? Good morning, Shane. Um, in the manner in which the investigation reek of old Ireland, firstly, a social welfare inspector can show by the Pearson's house entirely unannounced come in, there's a huge wealth of anecdotal evidence and anecdotal is important that social welfare inspectors will come in, rummage through a person's house, go through their wardrobes. Most lone parents, the vast majority of lone parents are led by a female. They're being asked invasive questions about kind of the status of their relationships, of if they have other men over. It's incredibly intrusive. And that's been, we've known that now for a couple of years. It was first reported in the examiner about a year, 18 months ago. And since then, I've been trying to ask questions to find out about the process. Yeah. Okay. And the process is there's absolutely no evidence. So one of five social welfare inspections result in a reduced payment or someone being cut off. We don't know why. We don't know if that's a consequence of an administrative error because nobody's collecting any data on this. Okay. We don't know. Well, I, so, I think we can guess and say if one in four, uh, one in four at least reduced payment, it, it, I think we can guess and say a fair proportion of them are because people were claiming incorrectly. I think it's or not. Or fraudulently. Think, let's call it what it is. But let's also paint the profile of who a one-parent family are. They're probably most likely to at risk of poverty within the state. They're living far below the breadline. So I don't think it's good enough to say that we can guess because that shouldn't be the case. If somebody's going into another person's but, home... But sorry, well, Gary, are we differentiating? Are we saying it's okay for so, certain types of people or certain uh, categories of people, let me put it like that, to defraud the state, but not okay for others? No, we're absolutely not saying that. We're saying that if these inspections are going to take place to the intensive way that they are, we should have data behind them. We should understand the nature of them and there should be a fair and due process. Now, give, I'll give another example. In social welfare inspectors have continuously gone into people's homes throughout the latter stages of the pandemic. One in four have been cut off. There is absolutely no option available, which used to be the case for people who have been cut off to have an oral hearing where they can go into the Office of the Social Welfare and outline their case. That no longer happens. So we can still yeah. do the inspections. 
where people can't come in. It's unfair, it's targeted, and it plays off this belief that one parent families... Well, of course it's targeted. System. You're targeting the people who are claiming the, the payments to ensure their... I mean, you can't... You can't. Disproportionately targeted, Shane. There is other forms of payment. We don't, we don't go after pensions fraud in the same way. We don't go after other forms of fraud in the same way. Well, you regularly, manner. you regularly see people before the courts um, for, for um, fraudulently claiming uh, pensions. <laughs> <laughs> not to the same extent, yeah. but what I'm asking is, can we have the data behind it? So if I was a social welfare inspector and I decide I'm going down to Mrs. Murphy's house down the road, who's the recipient of one parent payment, yeah. I do not have to outline the reason why I am now going down to her. I don't have to outline the suspicion. I can simply decide, you know what, I'm going to get down today and I'm going to rummage, I'm rummage through her wardrobes. That okay. is incredibly unfair. Uh, that, that, that's what we've been trying to highlight the last 18 months. Okay, if you don't do that, though, inspections. but if you don't do that, how can you check? Because, I mean, otherwise it's open season and everybody can claim uh, a single parent's mm-hmm. allowance. No, I don't think that's the case. There's a, there's a very clear criterion process by which you go through to claim single parent's allowance. So in terms of the yeah, checks... But, but circumstances checks. change and people's circumstances change. And people can say, I'm single, I'm not in a relationship, uh, oh, I'm absolutely single... But how, how do we know that's the case unless you do spot checks every now and then? I know, spot checks, no, again, the nature, if we're going to do spot checks, fine, but we need to have the criteria set out by which these spot checks can take place. And what we absolutely have Such to as, have... Such like as, what kind of criteria? Tipping the people off that you're going to be calling on, on a Wednesday? I mean, that's hardly going to work, is it? Well, what's the alternative is that we just have people showing up at a person's door on announcements. If you say you're going to be there on Wednesday, they'll get rid of all, they'll they'll dispose of all the evidence. Shane, if somebody knocked at your door and decided they're going to rummage through your wardrobe, what would you say? Well, if I was claiming single parents' allowance, I would say, I I think I would say, well, look, fair enough, I'm claiming this allowance, you've reason to believe it. They rummage through your wardrobe? Mental. Well, I, oh, I, I'd love to hear. I wonder, I wonder how much rummaging through wardrobes actually, uh, actually takes place. But you know sorry, is, know, but is it your contention? Know. Is it your contention that um, there shouldn't be checks at all? No, my contention is that if these checks are going to be carried out, there should be an absolute due process in terms we should have the reason why, we should have the data as to why a person was targeted. But I presume they happen because there is a, no, a suspicion, a reasonable don't. suspicion that, Shane, that the person is actually living with somebody Shane, say for example, and fraudulently claiming. We don't know how many people are checked in, say, Dublin 1, for example, compared to Dublin 4. There is no criteria by which we can say this many people were checked in this part of the city compared to this part. So what my contention is, it's a form of profile and it's disproportionately targeted at the people who are most vulnerable within this state. At the people and who are claiming the welfare. Well, there's other forms of claims that happen and there's other forms of fraud that happen that don't receive the same. I mean, have white collar fraud, for example. Do we have the same level of um, state resources put into combating white collar fraud in the state? We certainly, we absolutely do not. Some strong opinions from TD Gary Gannon from News Talk Breakfast. So a noisy neighbour can lead to significant problems, Josh. When this happens in an estate or an apartment block or, or road and it's, it's having a, 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 an impact on people nearby, what happens? Well, Anton, we know ourselves that at the start of these instances, in most cases, someone will just try their best to be polite and ask, look, would you mind doing such and such? It's causing this to happen in our home and just hope that that little dropping that hint will work. In other cases, people might speak to a third party or a mutual friend, but then there is the suit and tie job as well, the headed letter in through the letterbox. Now, the ways in which communities are changing, particularly in urban areas where you might not be best pals with the person who lives next door, this seems to be an approach that's growing in popularity. I spoke with the president of the Mediators Institute of Ireland, Margaret Considine, and I started off by asking this question if it was becoming more common for legal action to be taken in neighbourhood disputes? Yes, it's on the rise. And two, it is not uncommon, even before COVID, for community disputes to reach a legal level. And why is that? Because historically, the first time we have a conflict, the place we think to go is our lawyer, our solicitor. And they're my warrior who's going to battle into this conflict for me. But actually, there are lots of community mediation groups, professional groups who can help. So in fact, what I would say is that you don't need to turn a dispute into something legal very quickly. In fact, if you mediate it, you're more than likely to repair the issue quickly, efficiently, keep the relationship and at a very low cost. At the end of the day, if you're living next door to a neighbour and you're fighting over you know, boundary walls or dog poo in your garden or teenagers noise or broken windows or whatever it might be, your baby's not being able to sleep, you're still going to be living there. 
So you have to resolve the dispute. For people out there now who are frustrated to the wall, they've had enough, whatever their scenario or situation is that they're living in, how do they approach this now? Well, first of all, what I would say is that people intervene in conflict with the best of intention and the worst of effect. So if you know what you're doing and you're going in to resolve instead of knowing how to fight, of course, try and resolve it yourself. Unfortunately, we tend to do the opposite. So oftentimes we go in to tell them what's wrong as opposed to resolve. So if you go in with the resolution mindset, you're willing to listen to them, to hear their story and understand what's going wrong for them as well as what's going wrong for you. Then, you know, open a dialogue is what I would say and keep the heat out of the argument and keep a neighbour, keep a relationship and feel happier living in the home that you're living in and the community. And according to a text, get the wood floors out of your apartment if you're above ground, because apparently that's the the, result, the source of a lot of complaints. That's the president of the Mediators Institute of Ireland there, uh, Margaret Considine. So you're meant to resolve the issue before it gets completely out of hand. Did you speak to anybody, Josh, who has found themselves in the completely out of hand situation? Well, I've spoke to a few people. Now, they weren't quite literally living beside neighbours from hell, but they did say that they were frustrated over matters in the past and some were the subject themselves of the noise. Just listen out, though, in this next clip. There is one reoccurring theme, or should I say sound, from a lot of the people I spoke with that seems to annoy them. They still do, but I don't, I don't say anything about it. In what ways now would they be? Noisy, house full of dogs. Or... House full of dogs, the barking. Yeah, yeah. and throwing all their shit out in the garden. Just like a, treating it like a dump. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, it's just ignore it as much as you can, like, you know. Have you ever been close to approaching someone and asking them, look, would you ever keep the noise down? Or Have we done it once or twice? I visit someone who has the most incredibly annoying neighbours, and I in, hate going up there. In what ways? Is it just noise? Well, or? they have uh, dogs, and they're constantly barking, and every time I go up there, it just kills me. So it turns you off visiting your friend because of the neighbours? Absolutely, yeah, it does. And have you ever had to approach maybe a neighbour in the past yourself? I live beside a lot of odd people, you know. I'm in a community of oddities, as I am myself. I live in a, an apartment, right? Below me is a man uh, who hates noise. And when I was in there a week, um, he approached me. I said, hello, how are you? Are you settled in all right? I said, yes, I am. And he reaches into his pocket and he takes out some earphones. And he said, I hope you don't mind, but he said, I can hear your radio. I listen to news talk. I hear your radio going at night. Is there any chance you could put on the earphones? I had one that I definitely annoyed. And they annoyed me by telling me I didn't them. <laughs> were, you, were you turning up the volume in the speaker? Or? Yeah, yeah. Leaving win- I, I was leaving the windows open and then like having telly on all night or music on and forgetting that I was annoying other people. Yeah. And it came to a point where, where they did approach you, did they? Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've changed now. I've changed. I don't do it anymore. But was it kind of heated? Like, or how, how did you deal with the situation? It was a small bit, yeah. Kind of, I was denying it first, but then I realised, yeah, yeah, I was doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Parking dog. <laughs> American dog that's what annoys you the most yeah. I can't stand it like it up just half seven in the morning like oh jeez it just yeah some people there on the streets of Dublin sharing their views on annoying neighbours so by the sound of things it's, it's often not the people it's the dogs yes Anton a lot of the feedback did match the CSO research which found that noise from dogs is on par with the people's level of frustration from neighbouring houses at 19% but we can't be blaming the dogs either I suppose like in a sense it's their owner's responsibility to try and reduce this from happening so to get some advice for pet owners and for those who are being driven mad by the wolves and the barks I asked Gillian Bird from the DSPCA Well, dogs bark for a number of different reasons. Number one would be communication. So they might be having a chat with a dog up the road. So it could be kind of the, hi, how are you? I'm fine. Oh, that's grand. You know, it could be that type of conversation. But it also can be a sign of loneliness and stress. So it can be a situation where a dog is barking because it wants to notify its owners that it wants to come in or it wants some food or it just wants some attention and love. It can also be a stress barking thing where they can actually develop this barking thing where they know they're going to get negative attention for barking. Like for people listening today who maybe you're in the house that doesn't have a dog and the next door neighbours have two dogs out the back and they're nonstop. What would you say to them? Well, the best advice we can give is, first of all, the owners of the dogs may not know that they're barking because they may be out at work during the day. They may not be aware there is an issue. And one of the simplest things you can do is to start keeping a sound diary. And that is to record when the dogs are barking and annoying you. If you think there's a correlation, is the the bin lorry going past? Is there the postman just been? And then very politely, if you can, 
maybe just knock into the neighbours and say, listen, just to let you know, I know you're out during the day, but are you aware your dog is barking? And then to be put in the other shoes then and being the dog owner, they believe they're doing everything right, but the dog is still barking and they're trying everything. How do they improve the situation? They need to have a look at the situation. They need to look and see what they can do to rectify it because at the end of the day, it is noise pollution and it is something that if it did end up going to court, a judge will tell them that they have to stop the dog barking. Maybe they need to look at putting the dog into a a doggy daycare situation, getting a dog walker in during the day, or even being a situation where they, they try and arrange to bring the dog to work with them. Josh Crosby reporting. I C U M I. In case you missed it, on News Talk. One, two, three, four. We won't take it anymore. Five, six, seven, eight. Spiking spot. Tell your mates. This is just something I've kind of built up so much passion for because I've been spiked a few times in the past when I've been working uh, gigs as a sound engineer and as a photographer. It was just a very scary experience to know that I was working and I was enjoying myself and I thought I felt safe at a sound desk. And now the fact that there's new ways of it happening has me absolutely petrified. Like Even if I'm not going to be taking my free drink during a gig, if I have my camera and I'm going around an audience, that something can happen to me now, that someone could easily just come up to and get me in the arm. And were there any signs that you were aware of before you were spiked or during? I'd heard in the past about um, ice sinking and colour changing and over fizzing of drinks and stuff. Uh, what I noticed was I took a sip of the drink and I was thinking, oh, this tastes kind of cross between like salty and maybe a bit soapy. I thought maybe it was res- residue of a dishwasher tablet that they hadn't rinsed it properly. And then I just started feeling like very sleepy and a bit just kind of ditzy loopy. And then I just I had to sit down. My friends were with me, luckily, so like I was taken care of, drank a lot of water, and I found out that that taste is the sign of GHB. There was no physical telltale sign. It was just, thank God, I had tasted it. But again, that can be easily dismissed as being like an unrinsed glass. Like, I was very aware of myself, but if I wasn't aware of myself, I probably wouldn't have thunk twice of it, which is even more petrifying because obviously I guess the main targets of these are going to be people had a few drinks before. Unless something is done and really, really cracked down upon, I'm not going to feel safe. Mary Crilly, CEO, Sexual Violence Centre Cork. Well, I think I'm here in solidarity. I'm here also to talk about the Safe Gigs campaign that we have going in the centre to involve venues, to involve crew, to involve musicians, to involve everybody. I think every venue wants people to have a good time. And especially with this new spiking with injection, we have come across spiking over the years. The injection is worrying because people feel something on their arm or their leg. They feel they're, they've hit off something or maybe a bit of glass or maybe a chair and they doubt themselves. Because since we started, we've been contacted by a lot of female musicians who kind of say when they're often on stage... They're harassed and humiliated and everybody is getting involved in this. Um, And that's where we're at, just to create safety for everybody and have zero tolerance. And do many people present to the centre as victims of spiking? There would be an awful lot of say, I can't remember, I passed out, um, I have drank a lot before, I've never passed out, I'm really worried, I'm really concerned, they're kind of slow to call it that, um, and then a lot of them won't go for toxicology, they won't go to the satellite unit, they won't go to the guards, because again, they say it was a friend or somebody who brought them home was a friend, or they end up in a bed with a friend kind of on top of them, or somebody who they knew, and how did they get there, and they blame themselves and say, well if I can't remember how I got there, how can I even go to the guards with this, how can I go to court with this maybe I did consent, I can't remember and if you can't remember then you didn't so it really is very difficult I think for victims of sexual violence, female or male to get justice in this country, it really is I felt like I had to come in and uh, show support because it's it's really a horrible thing that's happening to people, Uh, I think it's actually disgusting that people go out and do something like that to innocent people going out just to kind of have fun and go with their friends like. And what would you suggest people do if they're witness to someone being spiked in a nightclub? If I saw someone that was being spiked or if I thought that I might have seen something if they maybe bumped into them or something it looks suspicious uh, you have to go out and see if they're okay see if they felt anything straight away because uh, if you don't uh, they might end up having maybe the worst night of their lives and it might affect their entire life going forward. Elaine Smith reporting for Lunchtime Live. Now, this week, the Cabris Roadshow was back with Liverpool legend, the great Robbie Fowler. Here's Joe Malloy. I would imagine walking down the streets of Liverpool when you were 22 was manic and you were being chased and autographs and all that kind of thing. Now that you're 46, by the way, it's scary to have you as 46. I mean, where are the years going? Now that you're this age and maybe the hype has died down, is it, is it a nicer experience walking through Liverpool? Um, 
Yes and no. Uh, don't get me wrong. I think that there's going to be a time when no one's absolutely interested you in uh, interested in me, and I think maybe that's the time to start worrying. Joe, in all honesty, but um, I'm quite lucky. Whereas even when I was younger, I think people just used to see me and they just sort of leave me alone. Now, one of the problems I did have was, um, you know, I didn't really get the fame that came with football. In all honesty, because I, I played football and didn't really associate anything anything other than football. But then it's all all of a sudden people want a piece of you, you know, and your autographs, your pictures, and you know, and, and various other things. So you know, it, it obviously goes with the with the territory, and you just have to accept it. Uh, but I, I was very very uncomfortable with it uh, initially. Um, it just wasn't for me, you know. I wanted to play football and only football, and I, I wasn't aware of of everything that came with it. Obviously, I understand that now, and obviously as you get older and you know you go through the years and you know what football means and. You know what you mean as 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 a person, as a player to you know to you know to people who come up to you. Um, and in all fairness, you know as much as I wasn't comfortable with it, you know I would never swap it because it's 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 given me such a great life. Football, you know, yeah. it's it's given me it's given me things that I probably would have only you know dreamed of growing up. So um, you know I, I'm I'm not knocking it. And if I could go back and do it all again, Joe, then I would be on that first. You know, playing, I would be on that first time machine, and uh, I, I would love to do it all again. I guess it's a privilege, isn't it? Because it's funny you bring that up. Because I was reading an interview you did in the Guardian a good while ago. Now, to be fair, this was two thousand and five, and you were saying, "I don't love going out. I get paranoid about people staring at me. Even now, I don't deal with people looking at me. I can't do it sometimes. Can't go out. I don't know how to react when people stare." I mean, I, I, I can't relate, but I can imagine it's a strange experience if you feel like all eyes in the restaurant are on you. Yeah, and it, it's probably more magnified now with obviously social media and you know and camera phones. And, and don't get me wrong, there, there wasn't many camera phones certainly when I was growing up. And uh, you know, come in, come into the public eye. Uh, but nowadays, it seems you know every man, every woman, every dog has a has a camera phone, and and he can you know snap you doing whatever. So, you know, at times there's, there's a little bit of privacy that you you want to have and you want to enjoy, but. You know, at times you, you don't feel as though you can ever let yourself go because you, you, you feel as though everyone is 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 after a piece of you. And that, and that could be a, in a good way or it could be in a bad way. Yeah. Uh, you know, someone's maybe wanting you to fall over so he can put something, you know, something, um, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm I'm, I'm quite a level-headed lad and, you know, I, I love signing autographs. Uh, but there's, there's days and... Anyone who's ever been in the public eye will tell you, you know, you're not perfect all the time. And, and there might be one moment where someone catches you off guard and, um, you know, it might be a, a picture with your eyes closed. It might be, you know, someone uh, wanting an autograph and you've had a bad day. Oh, not today, mate. Or give us 10 minutes. And, and that one person will tell everyone that you're you're a nasty person or, or you're this and you're that. Uh, I mean, I'll I'll sit and have pictures and, and sign autographs for, you know, for everyone. But, you know, doesn't matter because that one person who you don't sign, uh, you know, an autograph for or, or a picture for, he's the one who will, um, you know, will tell everyone, and, and that's society, society today, and that one negative comment gets, you know, escalated unbelievably, and uh, all of a sudden it's, uh, it's a different story then. What a straight talking guy, former Liverpool striker and manager Robbie Fowler from Off the Ball. Let me bring in um, Michael Heenahan, who is a bar owner in Westport. Um, he's here with us here too on Lunchtime Live today. Michael, what's the situation in your place? Andre, good afternoon. Um, Andrea, I, I, I suppose I contacted you today because I, I always listen to your programme. Um, but I, I just find in the last little while that it's very unfair that, to, that we receive such constant uh, negative media in relation to our sector. I personally operate within the parameters of the law, the, re- the, the regulations. We are a, a late bar here in Westport, and we not only ask for COVID certificates to, um, uh, to be presented, but also that they're accompanied with photographic ID. In the last three weeks alone, I'm doing this job 20 years, mm. I've never received more verbal abuse, physical threats on the door of my premises personally. I have lost customers, I have lost friends, customers of five to 20 years, and it is exceptionally difficult to operate within the parameters at the moment. But yet we're still doing it. And I feel it's grossly unfair that, as I said, there is such scrutiny upon our sector, specifically the, the dance license, the late bar, the nightclubs, 
There are many other sectors in our economy that don't receive or require any scrutiny or enforcement. Did you hear, I mean, just out of curiosity, Michael, sorry, just let me cut across you for a moment. Yes. Did you, did you hear Mary that was on with us there a few moments ago? I haven't actually. You I'm didn't sorry, hear, okay, no. no, okay, fair enough, no, just no. Be, so Mary was telling us that she um, she works in a pub in a rural area and they, they 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 don't check, they don't ask for the COVID vaccine. Okay, well, I said I can really only speak from my from my own premises. I we open here at seven o'clock in the evening, and I personally stand at my own door a because I don't expect any member of my staff to take the verbal abuse or physical threats that I receive. Unless I'm willing to do it myself. What, what can you give and us an, said, an insight into, Michael? What kind of stuff for you? Like, oh, it ranges from, as I said, so it starts off with basically people either uh, presenting fraudulent uh, COVID certificates, um, different IDs. You get in the nod, the wink, and and then it, it it sort of it quickly escalates to the usual. We'll never come back, you know. And then the threats. You get people threatening your family, um, and it's it's utterly disgusting. And I said, we are being used as the tip of the spear. Like, let me be very clear. I'm really so happy to be open. I'm so happy to be back in business, yeah. creating a problem for my staff and creating an environment that people like to come to for entertainment. But it's exceptionally difficult at the moment. And as I said, I have no problem enforcing the regulations. But I believe that everybody across every sector in our community should be also asked to do the same thing so that everyone is asked to do, do their part in this fight, not just us. The, and we are persecuted for doing it. Michael, the, um, I spoke to Pat there, Pat Crotty, he's a publican as well in, um, in Kilkenny. Yeah, and, know you know, Pat. yeah, and he talked about, you know, and he, and he makes a fair point around regulation. And like, uh, you know, my, my view on this is there is absolutely no point in this thing, you know, front page newspaper headlines the week before Bank Holiday weekend to say uh, COVID compliance people are going to be out in force this weekend. This should be out all of the time so that so that the people like you and like Pat and like others out there um that you know you're you're, you're doing it right you're do- adhering to the law of the land you're doing what you're being asked to do you're doing it for the safety of your your staff and your your customers and yourself and the whole lot and yet like there is the potential though that like you know I, I don't know what's going to come out of this meeting with the government and hospitality people this afternoon but there is I suppose some concern among industry Michael that there will be further restrictions placed on businesses again in the lead up to Christmas because of places that aren't going to the effort that you I suppose I, I would agree with you. Um, I would agree, like for example, I've been inspected twice by the HSA and once by the PSA just over the last sort of 10 day period. And again, there were, there were no issues whatsoever. Um, I, I do think though, we have to be more, as I said, it has to be a collective approach across every business sector in our community, supermarkets, hotels, restaurants, hairdressers, not just bars. Andrea Gilligan on Lunchtime Live. I see you. M. I. In case you missed it. On News Talk. On Friday, Scottish singer, writer, and activist Alan Cumming joined Pat on The Pat Kenny Show. Now, I, I made reference to those uh, names, uh, the Rembicals, the Whoopi Goldbergs, and the Misha Barishnikovs, uh, and that's apropos of uh, your starring role in Cabaret. And you yes. talk about a young Scottish weirdo becoming the toast of the Great White Way. Um, did you suffer at that time from what is now known as imposter syndrome? Because Jodie Foster, for example, confessed to that feeling. I did. I mean, I mean, and I was an imposter. You know, I, I really didn't understand. I mean, it wasn't so much that I didn't feel I had I deserved to be there. I just didn't understand why I was there and what was expected of me. So it was it was overwhelming because there was all these sort of I mean it was lovely everyone was very nice but I was suddenly kind of realizing oh there's this whole etiquette here and this whole kind of system and structure that um it's not just putting on a show it's all this kind of way that the great and the good come back and greet you and meet you and take you out and and then award season I didn't know what award season was so I was uh I mean, I, I, I felt kind of, you know, I felt I was aware that I was causing a sensation, but I really, I, you know, I had no touchstone or context for it. So, and I still feel in, in certain situations that, you know, confused and overwhelmed and not quite sure what what I'm doing. And, and, and part of the reason for this book was to sort of say, 
you know, it does, you, 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 nobody ever gets over trauma. You, you live with it and you manage it and you live your life. But also, I don't think you ever, and you shouldn't get over this idea that, you know, you're, you, I, I think everybody feels they're just kind of winging it a bit yeah. in their lives. I certainly still do. Now, in your uh, other memoir, Not My Father's Son, you talked about the confrontation with your father. You talked about the abuse at his hands. And it's you don't kind of walk away from that, as you say. There, you carry it, it with you all the time. But it is not the weight that it once was. No, because I think I've you know put it out into the world. I've I've analysed it. I've, I've I've I think just being aware of it, not pretending it hasn't happened, not pretending I've got over it, not denying it. I've kind of placed it in a in a way that means that I'm aware it's going to affect me, it's going to come back. I'm, there's a shadow of my father over everything I do. But I think I, he's there on my terms now. And I, I think, you know, I, I understand behavioural patterns I have because of what I've been through and I understand certain things trigger me in a way. And I think that's just really important to be aware of that. And the worst thing to do is just feel you've triumphed or overcome it or that you're just, or you, you know, you're going to use denial as your modus operandi. There's a very interesting uh, introduction to the book and where you talk about memory and how memories uh, may not be real. Um, They can be constructed, for example, from the memories of others. So I presume that's why you'd like to call it a memoir rather than an autobiography. Yes. I mean, I I sort of love the idea of the subjective nature of, of memory and memoir and I don't, you know, I, I, it's, it's really about the lessons I've learned and like, it's kind of about where I got to. And I think that's, you know, it's, it's very difficult to be completely accurate about something, even if it was, had just happened. I read a really interesting thing uh, recently that scientists have found out that when we experience something, we have two versions of memory. We we have a short-term memory and a long-term memory. And they're both being recorded at the same time. So everything we do, there's sort of two versions of it. Uh, one for our, you know, that we will remember in the future and one for what we'll remember just in a few days. I find that fascinating. And then you combine that with, you know, when you meet people after a long time who have shared a memory with you and you discuss that. Sometimes it's something you have had no recollection of at all. Sometimes you have a completely different version of what happened to them. And I just think that's all really fascinating. And, you know, what is... What is memory? And also, what is memory just something we recall or is it something that we are used to grow and be better people? I hope it's the latter. Some perceptive words there from actor Alan Cumming from The Pat Kenny Show. Now, this week, Claire McKenna spoke to happiness expert Dr. Andy Cope for Live and Kicking. Here's a short clip. So what is happiness as you understand it through your studies? Do you believe it's a, it's a decision people can make? Um, again, it's quite a nuanced academic point. I don't think happiness is a choice. OK, so now, happiness is an emotion. And what you can do with happiness is you can open up to it and you can allow more happiness into your life. But you can't actually choose happiness. But positivity is not an emotion. Positivity is an attitude. And therefore, if you can learn to be more positive, then that's a, that will inoculate yourself against the worst of the world. But the question, of course, is how? It's all around, it's all, you know, we go on social media, we read all these wonderful quotes, uplifting quotes. But when the world is knocking the happiness out of us, what we've got to do is, is learn, like I say, to take control of our own well-being and mental health um so rather than waiting for people to break and fixing them is inoculating them giving them strategies that they can use so they don't break in the first place what blocks happiness um i think the modern world is very good at blocking happiness and i think um i think it's for adults because i know this will be going out mostly to adults i think the relentless nature of the world i think the full-onness of it if you like and the the news and the social media pressures and the it's all against us, really. So what we've got to do is, is um, I think we're really busy, quite often doing the wrong things. We're busy doing the wrong things. Here's another list for your listeners, right? If everybody got a pen and paper and wrote down the 10 happiest moments of their life, right, which is quite a, a difficult thing because you'll have lots. But if you narrowed it down to the 10 happiest moments of your life, I would hazard a guess that there won't be any products on that list. It will be moments. It will be special times that you spent with close family, 
probably with no Wi-Fi, doing very simple things. And therefore, experiences with people, that's really where your happiness will lie. So I would say to, to kids is to set out to have more experiences, um, not online experiences, but experiences with real people, very simple pleasures. Um, and, and I think that's where the key to happiness is much more correlated with relationships and people than it is with um, products. And I think that's interesting that you say moments, because I think we have this idea that happiness is something you're supposed to feel every single second of every single day. And we're supposed to have a whole spectrum of emotions through any given day. And I think there's become this rhetoric that we avoid all the negative feelings, whereas anger, rage, upset, sadness, they're all very much a a part of it as well. And happiness is there among it. You're not necessarily supposed to be skipping along like a Disney character (laughs) 24-7. Oh, Claire, I love you. I love you. I think you really get this, right? There's an old English word, grinagogue, right? We, it's a 17th century word. We don't use it anymore. But a grinagogue is somebody who's so happy you want to punch them on the nose, right? And I'm, so you can be too happy. And I, of course, nobody's. I'm a doctor of happiness, but I'm not happy all the time. And I think all the emotions you alluded to, that anger and fear and frustration and anxiety, they're all perfectly valid emotions, um, and, and, we, and, and being alive, being a human means you have to experience all of those emotions. But what you want to try and do is experience more of the positive ones and a little bit less of the negative ones in order to sort of really, truly flourish. And that's and that's it. But they're all OK. I, when children tell me I've got anxiety, I, I question that. I, I think I, I have I've got anxiety, too, sometimes. But I've also got joy and happiness and I know how to bring those to the fore. And I think that's where we're going wrong. We're bringing the wrong emotions into our consciousness. So what are those strategies for happiness? What do most happy people, in inverted commas, have in common? Uh, well, they have the, the, you've already alluded to gratitude. They tend to come at life from the bedrock of looking at what they have got rather than grumbling about what they haven't got. So, this, so the gratitude list actually is a true, true and proven uh, therapeutic thing. Um, choice for me, what, com- what came out of my research was attitudinal choice. So consciously and deliberately choosing a positive attitude, which kind of goes around with you everywhere. Um, then there's all sorts of things. Around. I mean, here's a lovely one is the science of hugging. I don't know if you're a huggy person, but uh, the, the average hug lasts 2.1 seconds. But for the love to transfer between two people, a hug needs to last seven seconds or longer. And that's a beautiful piece of homework for the people over in Ireland is is to become a seven second hugger with the people you love. Um, so it's not for strangers in the park, you know, because that's weird. But actually, even if you're a non-hugger, is actually treat the 12 people in your life who are closest emotionally to you. So close family, close friends. After after you've listened to this um, recording is is actually go and hug somebody and hang on to them for seven seconds and see what happens. It, what it should do, don't count out loud because that'll spoil it, but what will, will happen is the love will naturally transfer. It's a beautiful thing to do. And um, it's an I love you hug, a seven second hug. There's your homework. Some superb advice there from author, coach and happiness expert, Dr. Andy Cope from Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. And of course, you can tune in to Claire every Sunday morning from 8 till 9. Okay, I'm going to leave you with now some interesting perspectives on the art of going grey. Here's Josh Crosby. Have a great weekend. I'm on my way out and you get grey hair when you're leaving. And I've had grey hair for about 25 years. You're not leaving anytime soon, so... I hope not. And how how did you feel about it? Did you ever try cover it up or hide it? No. When I was younger, 25 years ago, some of my colleagues in a high-pressure corporate jobs used to dye their hair because they believed that when they got older, they were more likely to be laid off and things like that. So they wanted to remain looking young. But other people think that with grey hair comes wisdom. It's not always true. So. As, as someone personally speaking, did, did wisdom come with the grey hair? Uh, along with a lot of other things. But <laughs> no, no. So would you ever think about dyeing your hair grey? Definitely, yeah. I think it's such a look, such a move. It's in fashion, is it? Yeah, yeah. yeah it really is. Yeah. Well, it depends on what kind of grey. A nice ashy 
bright, almost white grey. Yeah. And what about when the time comes when you naturally go grey? Oh, I'll go fully grey. Yeah. yeah, and I'll make it a look. I'll grow my hair long and I'll, I'll make it a look. So you think grey is sexy? Basically, yeah. Silver fox is nice. I'm a senior, you know. 55 years old. When you start having grey hair, so it's not popular. No, but in Sweden, do a lot of people try to hide it, dye it? No, I don't think so. No. We are pretty relaxed, so no. And when you first started showing signs of grey, how did you feel about it? I feel like, the, do you know the football player Glenn Hussein, who played in Liverpool? I feel like him, old. I'm sort of morphing into grey, because I think it's a beautiful, sexy colour. You're going to embrace it when the time yeah. does come down the line? Yeah, well, it's, it's started already. Why fight something that's natural, inevitable? And I'm enjoying it, yeah. 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 So do you think, is it, is it sexy, is it attractive? And Very much so. Yeah. You've got to be proud of what's naturally yours, yeah. Totally. It rocks. It rocks. I don't have much hair left, but turning grey is, is not a bother for me. And for women also, I think it's better to turn grey rather than to uh, colour their hair I think. So you say to anyone listening who might be coming on to that verge embrace it? Embrace it exactly, exactly. I think it, it isn't ageing really in the end I think you know and I think a lot of people I know who've coloured their hair got fed up doing it after a while and went back and embraced it and were happy. Do you think is it a, an attractive Well feature? it can be, there's grey and grey I suppose but that nice sort of steely grey can be very attractive I think, yes. Are you fearing it or will you embrace it? Embrace it I, I dye my hair. To make me look younger yeah. You don't think it's a sexy feature no? Grey hair on a woman, no on a man, not on a woman. I never I really and truly liked it and I couldn't wait for it to go all grey yeah. That was the thing, because I knew I wasn't going to ever put any colour in my hair anymore. I, I embraced it because what, what can you do? And then the grey came into fashion. Everyone wanted grey. So I said to me, Mammy, embrace what's natural. It's all in fashion. It's not going to cost you any money. And what about yourself now when you do reach your, your mammy's oh, absolutely, age? Absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Grey is in. I C U M I. In case you missed it. On News Talk. I'm hoping this email finds everyone well. I'm trying to finish that work project while carrying Dan's dead weight. I've got to get my hair cut for Sinead's sister's bed and get the sweet gains in and find the time to eat before I. Look, James, get real. No one gives a fuck about how busy you are. Hashtag rise and grind. Get real with the chicken and turkey range from Green Farm. Real protein, real tasty.